There was a period of time in the industry of working with teens at risk that the term reactive attachment disorder became very popular. And we were seeing a lot of kids diagnosed at a very young age with reactive attachment disorder. Now, for those of you who don't know what reactive attachment disorder or RAD is, it's something that's generally applied to a kid who has abandonment trauma. And so you can safely assume that uh, kids who are adopted might be diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. I will say that there were only a couple times in working with children, adopted or not, that I've only seen true reactive attachment disorder. And by that, I kind of mean severe, something that should have been diagnosed at a younger age. But at any time, also, I have to say that about half the kids in our treatment facility are adopted. So there's a trend with adoption. There's a trend in the industry with looking at abandonment issues and looking at reactive attachment disorder and saying kids are suffering from that. RAD is something that takes place before the age of five. And it creates not only, it's not only an environmental effect on the child of feeling abandoned, feeling the loss of a primary caregiver, but it creates some neurological struggles as well. My guest today is a therapist who worked with Fire Mountain way, way back at the beginning. I absolutely adore this man. He was our, not only a therapist for our kids, but he was also a family therapist. And he has a lot of experience with adoption, not only in his own family history, but his two children he adopted as well. My guest today is Aaron Schneider, and the title of today's show is Nobody Wants Me But You. This is Beyond Risk and Back. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather, and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to say from the start of the show, anytime you want to come back and work at Fire Mountain, we have a spot for you. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. <laughs> How are you doing out there on the East Coast? I'm doing great. Thank you. All right. Let's jump right into it because I know parents who are thinking about adoption, who have adoption, or who are thick in the adoption process or have a older adoptive child and might be experiencing some struggles need support. And I was only introduced to this a while back when I was talking to one of our parents about my own adoption, that I am adopted. My mother is my biological mother. My father is not. My father, uh, the, the man who raised me, my dad, adopted me when I was young. And I certainly can look back and see my experience of trauma. But she introduced me a book called The Primal Wound. And I read the book and was taken aback that there was actually a thing for kids who had been adopted. And as you and I talked about doing the show together, and you sent me an outline of your story, which I'm looking at right now, I had no idea that you had this much experience with adoption in your family. I thought you were just mm -hmm. a guy who wanted to adopt some kids. So tell everybody 
what it was like growing up, Aaron. Sure. My two kids are adopted and I have four siblings. Two of them are biological and two of them are adopted. And I also grew up with an aunt who was adopted. My siblings were international adoptions, one from my youngest sister from Romania and my second youngest sister from Hungary. It was quite an experience as a child to have these kids just poof out of thin air arrive in our home. My youngest sister was adopted at one month old from Romania, and she has had a relatively normal life. My second youngest sister was adopted at age seven from Hungary, and she did not have a normal life. She was in a terrible orphanage. She was abused, just put in cages, and my parents had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And that sister has really struggled because of her background. And so I grew up with two opposite experiences, one where it was relatively normal and then one where there was tremendous struggle. Because of that, I have chosen to use an adoption agency for my children locally where we adopted our daughter when she was zero. My wife was in the birth room when the birth mom gave birth and straight into my wife's arms. And my son, we adopted when he was two days old because I was just so afraid of the, I mean, any adoption is traumatic, even if you adopt at zero, but I was afraid of adding to the trauma and adopting later than that young age. So let's talk about that for a second, because one of the questions that I read as I was researching questions for today's podcast was a parent, and I have heard parents say this mm. in our parents' weekend, so it seems to be a common feeling, was, I got my kid at zero. What do you mean trauma? Let's talk about what comes mm -hmm. up for a child when they're adopted from zero or from yep. eight years old. Let's start with zero and work sure. our way up. In both cases, there is the, you know, you use the term primal wound, the book, there is a primal wound. Even in our case, we had the best of the best scenario where my wife, like I was saying, was literally in the birth room. As soon as the birth mom gave birth straight into my arms, my, my wife induced lactation. So now she goes, my daughter goes straight into my wife's arms, but she actually nursed the baby, our daughter, right away. And she still has a primal wound where it became, a, I'll just tell you a little story and then I'll get into some neuroscience. But the shocking thing for us is when it really hit was, you know, we went, we went back to the hotel room after we got our daughter and we were just so excited and we had to wait for a few weeks. We're in another state before the state approved of our adoption before we could cross state lines. And because it was an open adoption on the way back, we decided to visit the birth mom two weeks later we visited and we let her hold our daughter and we were shocked when we saw how our two-week-old daughter mushed herself into this woman's chest and we could just tell that she knew this was her birth mom because oh. multiple people had held her since that time and she did not do that. She mushed herself like there was no tomorrow into this woman's chest and we were shocked and we realized that this baby knows that we are not her biological parents. And it was a felt sense and we could just see it. And so from a neuroscience perspective, you know, there's there's multiple developmental needs that every child has. And the first need a child has is safety. When a child is born, it needs to know that it is 1,000% safe on this planet. And how does a baby know that? You don't tell a baby you are safe. You tell a baby it's safe by immediately doing skin-to-skin -skin holding. That tells the baby on a nervous system level that all is well. It feels, the baby feels the heartbeat of 
the mother. The baby can feel the warm skin. The baby can feel the soothing voice. And that is what tells the baby I am safe. Finding some information that they're they're saying that as early as the the second trimester, the human fetus is capable of auditory processing and, in fact, is capable yes. of processing rejection yep. in utero. Yes, and I, absolutely. That, that there's, a, there's a whole field of psychology dedicated to trauma that even happens before birth. Just, you know, our daughter, her birth mom told us that she, on this point, told us that, and it breaks my heart to even say this every time I think about it, it just hurts, that she seriously considered aborting our daughter very explicit. She almost did it. And our daughter definitely has some safety stuff. Like she definitely is really worried about um, uh, being safe a lot of the time. And we attribute it, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but we attribute it to perhaps sensing or hearing that her birth mom was going to abort her. What, how does it show up? How does, how does your daughter express the, the feelings of not being safe or the thought that she's not safe or questions around her safety? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she's four and a half now. And where we notice it is she, so she's, we've done a tremendous amount of rewombing her. So it's much less apparent now. But if she feels that someone's nervous system is slightly off, and this will get, I'll get into a little neuroscience to explain this, but if someone's nervous system is slightly off, she gets wackadoodle. She will just go berserks. Um, she will take a bullet foot and slam it against the wall. This is my read on it, and maybe, you know, someone else might say this isn't accurate, but my read on it is that her birth mom, while in utero, while she was in her birth mom's stomach and her womb, when she got, she got really stressed out, and in that stress, she decided she was seriously considering abortion. So stress equals potential death in her nervous system's eye, and so we see that when anyone around her is even slightly off, little fight or flight, she just loses it. And the work is for the adult around her to really calm down. And then she is a totally normal child. This, so, puts, a, this puts a lot of pressure yeah. on the adoptive parents because a newborn, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, an eight-year-old does not have yeah. the mental capacity to process the loss of a biological parent. Correct. Yes. And Aaron, that's a point I wanted to get to. So I'm glad to jump into it right now, which is adoptive parents have an extreme responsibility to do uh, their own mental health work. Just to reference something I said earlier, losing the birth parent is a trauma. Therefore, the nervous system is more jacked up than a regular child's nervous system, a little more fight or flighty. And so the only way to heal that is by, there's this word called external psychobiological regulation, which very simply means that when the adult around that child is calm, the child will feel calm. And so because their nervous systems are really more aroused than an average kid, the adult has a responsibility to be extra calm around that child. So yes, there is a tremendous amount of responsibility put on the adoptive parent to engage in mental health, to do the work. And I'll add one more thing. A lot of people have a false sense of Zen. Like they think that being calm is faking calm. And actually that is the worst thing one could do because the nervous system is still aroused. It's actually all about mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of the key tools to supporting an adoptive child. So if I am mindful of my stress, it will not negative, it will less likely negatively impact the child. But if I am not mindful, 
the child will feel it and it will dysregulate them. So we're this is this is a consistent message in the Beyond Risk and Bat podcast is that the parents having to regulate their own nervous system to parent yes. from their best place. But yes. you're saying that with an adoptive child, you have to go beyond the the normal parent, the average parent. You've got to get I don't want to use the term hyper vigilant, but you've got to go beyond vigilance of self-regulation into man any level of distress that I'm bringing could potentially cause some harm. Yes and no. Not any level of distress, but as long as, yes, there's a high level of responsibility for sure as an adoptive parent. And as long as one is engaging in mindfulness, so it's okay if I'm angry, it's okay if I had a bad day at work, as long as I'm watching the sensation, watching the emotion and watching the thought. When one does that, one automatically is less aroused. And so it's not like we have to be perfect, but we do have to be mindful. Okay. And when we don't, there's a higher chance the kid, there'll be a, a feedback loop and the kid will tell you that you, you are not in your power and they will act out. Pretty how, do adopt, how do adoptive kids tell you that you're not in your power and they're acting out? What are the signs that these adoptive, these parents of, of adopted kids are going to see? Basic examples. Sure, Every kid's sure, different, yeah. but what are the basic examples? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of overlap between, you know, quote, regular kids and adoptive kids, but you will just see it escalate faster and you will see a lot of things around attachment. And so... Do you mean um, physical these, things or emotional things? What do you mean? When you say attachment, like well, you and I, we, oh. shared, we shared a client who had, he was much older. He was 14 when we, when, yeah. when I were working with him, but his attachment to yeah. physical things, I don't know if you remember how he would steal the mail. And mm -hmm. you know, for him, it was about, he had to have a way to start a fire in case he was mm -hmm. homeless again. But we mm -hmm. were like, hey, we need to be able to pay the bills, so could you not steal the mail? <laughs> and I don't know if you remember, but yeah. then he would sleep for like six to 12 hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm referring more to emotional attachment in this case. And so what you'll see is a hypersensitivity. Again, this is generality, so it's not always the case, but you'll see a hypersensitivity to whether a parent is going to be present or not. And so if a child does not know in their heart of hearts that the parent is going to be there for a certain amount of time, they might do one of two extreme reactions. They might act out in a really uh, like violent sort of way or a hysterical sort of way, or they'll do the other extreme, which is to be perfect, where they are the good kids. They get straight A pluses. They dress well. They speak well. In either situation, they're really scared of losing the parent. They don't know in the heart of hearts and their nervous system that this attachment is secure. And so you are going to see these either, these either extreme. And so other classical mental health things that we see, just to say the obvious, is substance abuse, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, depression, and anxiety are like classical things we'll see. That ODD, it's um, oppositional defiant, is, is when I talked about that polarity before. So when the kids react, they'll kind of engage in those ODD behaviors. Oppositional defiant behaviors are really opposing the rules and pushing back. Or when they're really the good kid, it, everyone might tap themselves in the back like, wow, my adoptive kid is so good. But really, they're hiding an extreme fear of 
uh, losing their new attachment figure, their bio, their um, adoptive parent. Well, it's it's kind of one of those theories where you say 180 degrees of sick is still sick. You know, they're yes, they're yeah. they're being the perfect kid so that they don't get abandoned again, or yes. they act angry because anybody coming close to them is just another threat of abandonment. We have recently seen in the facility, we had a group of girls, we had three girls who were adopted and watching them interact. And wow. you know how powerful and how important tribe is at Fire Mountain. Now that's it's yes. literally one fourth of our program is the tribe concept in the community. Mm -hmm. These girls, their refusal to engage in tribe activity and community activity, and we didn't push it, we didn't scold, there was sure. no punishment, we just waited until they were ready. But the clarity came from, oh my God, the I love yous are literally just a promise that I'll leave you like there's and yeah. that was that was quite an eye opener for the staff to go. Oh, my gosh. Like mm -hmm. you can. Yeah. The other way to say it is the way we like to say it at Fire Mountain is we see so many adoptive kids in their warrior because they've got their shields up. They got a sword in the mm -hmm. other hand and they're covered in yep. armor and you can't get that close. They're not ready to be vulnerable for a long time time because when they were the mm -hmm. most vulnerable when they were the yes. most open to the world they yes. suffered a trauma they suffered a trauma and Aaron I totally agree and I will add that when a kid does not get that beautiful security that I was talking about the heartbeat the warmth the safety and all that they install unconsciously the opposite program the opposite program says the world is not safe and then they engage in behaviors that protect them from a very unsafe world. And those behaviors were probably wise at the time. The only thing an infant can do when they suffer the uh, separation trauma is disassociate. They can't do anything else. They can't fight. They can't run. They can't ask for their needs. They can't say, hey, world, please be safe. So they develop this thing called disassociation, which means they stop feeling the sensations of their body as acutely. And so this associative tendency um, is embedded in their lens of the world. And so if someone tries to approach, offer them tribe, offer them love, it's almost as if they don't even have the receptors to receive it because for they so can't, long. They can't process. If they can't correct. process the loss, how can they even process the gain? We have that 180 degree thing showing up again. Yes. Yes, exactly. I'm listening to you talk. I'm going back into my own life. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, of, of my own experience of not uh, growing up with a father. I had a father figure, but not a father. I think sure. about in the parents weekend, the parents of adoptive kids who cry, who don't understand, who've tried to provide everything for their child. They have, yep. they have gone yep. above and beyond the call of duty. And yep. here are these kids still 16, 17 years old. They're using, they're promiscuous. They're, yep. uh, they act out, they're defiant, or they have what would a term we're using affectionately. They've gone crispy. They've been the perfect child uh, yeah. so long that now they've burnt out on that. And now they're starting to cut, uh -huh. you know, or they're, they're mm -hmm. doing something like that. And mm -hmm. I see the pain in these mm -hmm. parents' eyes. They want to understand. So now we've talked about, here's the bottom line, folks. Your kid's traumatized. This adoption yep. thing, regardless of when you got them, hurt them, mm -hmm. hurt them deep. And it's yep. not, Aaron, is it something that adoptive parents can even repair? Is this something that a good adoptive parent can fix? Do you have hope of fixing your daughter's adoption trauma? Yes. 
Yes. I mean, I don't want to just say my daughter till the day she dies will always have some level of sense that she lost her birth mom and my son as well. But it's really healable and there's tremendous hope, Aaron. So when kids don't have a sense of safety, and I'm not just talking intellectually, I mean, their nervous systems don't have a sense of safety. And I want to call in a neuroscientific term, which is neuroception, nervous system perception. It's subcortical. It's below our thinking brain. So a kid can think they're safe, but their nervous system doesn't necessarily feel safe on a neuroceptive level. There is help for that. And so what a therapist would do is the same thing I would counsel my adoptive parents to do. And in a nutshell, it's all about recreating safety, offering that missing experience. And it goes back to the nervous system stuff with the external psychobiological regulation. So these kids need really soft and slow and safe interaction. You could even hear the tone change in my voice. They need to be approached um, like a feather and with a feather-like quality. Even working on eye contact very intentionally can be a huge way to create safety. They need a lot of healthy touch and they need a lot of sweetness and kindness. Now, not and as when they're older, that doesn't mean not without boundary. They absolutely need a tremendous amount of boundary. But installing a sense of safety is going to be super important. So one other example is telling kids who are adopted when you're leaving. So I am extremely clear with my daughter when I'm leaving, when I'm coming home, when my life, wife's leaving, when she's coming home. We are, and we repeat it over and over again. So she, her nervous system really can rely on our reliability that we are going to show up when we say we're going to show up. And the few times that I didn't, she spasms. She really does. And I could see that adoption piece in her. And so having a repetitive experience of safety, knowing when parent is going to be there and not be there is part of the healing process. I have more to say on that, but I just want to pause there and see how that lands for you to hear. You know, my parents were very sincere. My mom and my dad were very sincere about making mm -hmm. sure that we had dinner with the whole family mm -hmm. around the table at a regular time each night. I grew up without mm -hmm. a TV. So mm -hmm. in the evenings, right. there was a lot of quiet time. There was a lot of family time. We had a dining room and a kitchen. The kitchen had a table that we ate around, but fancy meals mm -hmm. were in the dining room and we retired to the family room. And there were, for me, those things still stand out in, in my memory as being very important yes. things. And as I'm looking through, you know, tips for parents of adoptive children, everything you're saying about, you know, the soft touch, the soft tone, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the clear timelines, the, the yes. helping, the, the helping the, the hippocampus, I believe it is that establishes the timeline of trauma, delegates that trauma of abandonment to that earlier phase by saying, I'm going to work at eight today and today I'll be back at 1230 for lunch and then I'll pick mm -hmm. you up from school at three and making mm -hmm. sure that we're there and making sure we have connection with kids mm -hmm. when, we, when we don't. This is standing out big. What other things are there for parents of adopted kids? If you've, yeah. if you've got a client, uh, a mom and a dad are saying, you know, we're, we're setting up for adoption. Give us the list. What's on your list for these families? Yeah, sure. And I totally agree with what you just said about almost like, um, healing 
the timeline, if you will. And a few other pieces. If you adopt a young child, rewombing them is what does really that mean? important. What, what, does, what does that mean? Because listen, rebirthing sure. is a bad word uh, in the therapy industry. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So rewombing is, so we, like I said, we adopted our daughter on day zero. So my wife had an ergo, a baby carrier, and we, she was in either on my wife's chest or my chest literally 24-7. Neuroscience has come out and said that this whole don't sleep with your baby thing is actually disastrous on all children, all the more so on adopted children. And there are safe ways to co-sleep. And there is, University of Notre Dame is coming out with tons of research about that. And when parents leave their children in a room by themselves, that actually induces disassociation and is a huge part of the extreme rates of mental illness in the Western world. And wow. so, re- yeah, and that's a whole other topic, but rewombing means that our daughter for the entire first year was with a parent 24-7 and we didn't force it, she wanted it and we gave it to her. So it's almost like she was in the womb, if you will, attached to someone who wasn't saying, I want to abort you. And just the opposite, we were saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And just giving her tons of love, tons of touch. People say like, your daughter's so confident, your daughter's so expressive and your her eyes are so light. And we take pride in the fact that we gave her so much secure attachment and we attribute it to that. So that's one huge thing. Now, if you adopt an older kid, you're not gonna wear them on your chest. But <laughs> there's such a fear of sexual abuse in today's culture for good reason. One of the tragedies of, one of the costs of the fear of sexual abuse is I have witnessed parents not touching their children enough in healthy ways. And in American culture, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so now you have all these parents who are so afraid of you know sexual abuse, they're not even touching their kids and wrestling with their kids and rough and tumble play. And so if you adopt an older kid, hold them, squeeze them, wrestle with them, rough and tumble play with them. Stop being afraid of touching your kids. Touch deprivation is actually traumatizing of in itself. And so either rewombing a infant or tons of touch for an older kid. And so that's one piece. I have another one, but I wanted to see if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think that, again, my own personal experience is that my dad, not my father, but my dad, the man who adopted me, he always wrestled with me. He always tussled me. He was very mm-hmm. affectionate with me. There was yeah. there was never a standoffish. And I, I will say very confidently that my experience of growing up with my dad was one of being one of his kids because he treated oh. me like one of his kids. He hugged me. He kissed me. He said, I love you. He held wow. me when I was cried. He scolded me when I was uh, when I needed to be disciplined. He drove sure. me to and from. He showed up to every time I squawked some pathetic song out on my violin or was <laughs> get you know was playing hockey. He was there. And there is there is a real art form, especially when we have teenagers and tweenagers. There's a mm-hmm. real art form that needs to be taught to parents on how to get out of the way but never go away. Correct. That's Mm -hmm. that's a big piece. And adoption Mm -hmm. have another layer of you can't go away, but you do need to sometimes get out of the way. You have to let natural consequences. Your child has to slip on the ice to understand that ice is slippery. And you can't toss a blanket or a blanket over them and a mattress under them every time they look cold or look like they're going to fall. They have to remember Mm -hmm. to get their jacket. 
One of the things that I'm seeing is, and you've said it over and over, and so I want to say it again in different words, you have to be more sensitive to the expression of fear that your child might have because of their adoption trauma. They may show fear in perfect behavior, in outrageous oppositional behavior. Regardless, you have to be more aware that they're being fearful. That doesn't mean you have to jump in and save and rescue them. It just means that you have to be regulated. You have to be able able to reassure them in that moment that they are safe and that mm-hmm. someone will be there to help them should they need it. So this is this is a tough one. This is this is a hard thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and great point on the older kids especially, yes, that is developing secure attachment is not in contrast to also allowing kids to sometimes have a boo-boo and learn from their mistakes, the blessing of a skid knee, as they say. And so I totally am with you on that. The other piece around healing the safety piece, the uh, security piece is presence. So we talked about really tracking nervous system and practicing mindfulness. I encourage all of your listeners that they don't really know what that is to please Google it and read, read about it and practice it. Super important. And we talked about rewombing and touching children in healthy ways. And another thing I'll add is presence. We live in a digital culture and this applies to all families, but especially adoptive families is no cell phone zones, no computer zones, no digital zones, where it just destroys my heart when I see parents spend time with their kids on their cell phone. We live in a 100% screen-free home. Our children have zero exposure to screens. They see us not use electronics around them. The only times we'll ever use a phone around them is if it's like a really immediate thing. And I will turn to my daughter and say, Korea, I love you so much. Right now, I just need to make a really important phone call for two minutes and then I'll be right back with you. And she knows that when I'm with her, I'm 100% with her. Okay. Um, So now I want to bring up, I want to bring up the devil's advocate here. I'm please. I can hear it. A parent saying, isn't your child going to become the center of the universe? And so therefore they'll be spoiled. They'll be self-centered that every time you've got to make a phone call, you've got to let them know that the focus Mm -hmm. is always on them and they'll just become self-centered because everything that you do for your business, for your work is wrapping around their experience of you being there or not being there. What would you say to a parent who says that just means that they're running the house? Aaron, great question. And so that's helping me clarify my point. So there's this idea of continuum concepts, which have you ever heard that? Yes. Yeah, great. So the idea, in a nutshell, continuum concept is the opposite of child centeredness. It's all about following the natural flow of nature and the adult being in their power and doing what they need to do around the kid. And so I'm not advocating for the parent to sit, if they're with the kid for eight hours, with their child for eight hours, not sit and play with them for eight hours. They can do dishes. They can have conversations with neighbors. They can go to the store. My point was more that parents do a tremendous disservice when they use email and Facebook and watch videos um, with their child around unnecessarily. And I have found in my own life that I actually do not need to use electronics when I'm with my kids. I have found that I can do that when they're in bed. I can do it other times. My children feel really connected to me when I'm running around doing errands and doing dishes and doing chores because the entire time I am either talking to them or talking to someone else and they can just feel attachment. There's always 
connection. And this is a whole other podcast, but electronic consumption creates a subclinical disassociative trance. And the worst thing you could do to an adopted kid is be in a disassociative trance yourself. It just reaffirms their, their trauma. Because remember what I said, when they were an infant, the only way they can deal with not getting their safety needs met is to disassociate. And so to have an adult around them in a semi-disassociative trance by looking at, watching videos, doing email, they are actually recapitulating the trauma, reminding them that adults around them are not going to be present. You know, this number, as I'm looking through this list of, of, you know, the top 10 tips for parents and stuff like that, and I'm hearing yours, number four, which is your number four, number four on this yep. list is reduce external sensory stimulation when possible, decrease television, overwhelming environments, number of children playing together at one time, and large family gatherings. We have a culture, a, the, the song, The Sounds of Silence, when they talk about all these people talking and nobody speaking and all these people hearing and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. listening. We live in an environment where four people can be in the room talking to 20 and nobody's mm-hmm. really connected. Nobody's really present. And it mm-hmm. is another podcast. Yeah. And there's been a million podcasts on this. The important thing, and this this comes up as well. Oh my God, my kid on their cell phone. You know, having worked with me and you working with, with adolescent clients yourself, that this is always a complaint for parents. Oh, this is always on their cell phone. This is always on their cell phone. But yeah. I'll be damned if I'm not in a restaurant and everybody's on their cell phone, not kids. Yep. Not the, the adults. Adult. Everybody's got text yep. neck. It's a shame. Oh, yep. it's, it's not connection. It's not presence. My wife, Correct. Chris, and I, we have a very, when we go out to eat, it is impossibly rare that one of us is looking at our cell phone and we mm-hmm. had to get each other to agree to that because we, right. we came from a generation. I grew up without a TV, rotary right. phone on the wall, but now right. I'm in a generation where, well, right now, here, sitting in front of me right now, <laughs> yeah. I've got a big monitor in front of me. I got an iPod charging next to me. I got my eye reader to my left. I got my cell phone to my right, and I got my computer in front of me. I am surrounded yep. by screens and technology. Yep. So this, once again... Not only is it a a piece that parents need to be aware of and begin to regulate in their own systems, but for adoptive parents, you have to go another layer to understand. Another layer. Mm -hmm. That if you're texting while your kid's talking and your kid's adopted, you're doing more damage to that kid that might be done to a kid who's not adopted, period. Period. And Aaron, I know it sounds harsh for your listeners to hear that. They might be like being, whoa. And I'm just speaking from years of experience both as three generations of adoption in my family and professionally, I have just seen this over and over again. So it's a hard pill to swallow. And it's also true. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. We can feel bad about the truth. That's okay. Being yeah. uncomfortable, <laughs> being uncomfortable yeah. with something that we don't want to hear is okay. We will all survive this. What else do you got for parents? What else would you tell them? I got uh, sure. Honesty. In the olden days, you know, there are a lot of things they did in the olden days. You know, my aunt's adoption was closed. It wasn't an open adoption, meaning she had no idea who her birth family was. There was no connection to her birth family. It wasn't spoken about for a long time. Emotions weren't processed. Terrible. A great man named Aaron Huey always said, secrets cause addiction, secrets hurt. And I really believe that concept. And I am a big believer in tremendous honesty. Our children are African-American, so we didn't have the luxury of even choosing whether we wanted to hide it. But even if they were white, I would have told them from 
the moment that my children could understand language, that they were adopted. We have a life book for each child that explains their entire adoption story from beginning to end. And it's with pictures and developmentally appropriate languaging. So they're growing up knowing the truth. And they also are growing up hearing us process our emotions about it. And so I say, do not hide your feelings. Do not hide the story. Be 100% honest because that honesty will allow them to be processing their own emotions because they're going to have emotions. But if they're growing up with a family that doesn't process, they're not going to process. Now, of course, caveat, be developmentally appropriate. So I'm not going to tell the same thing to a four and a half year old that I would tell to a 13 year old. So it's always within the capacity of the kid to understand. We have worked around, both you and I have worked around adoptive kids extensively. Mm -hmm. A lot of my staff here, a lot of my staff here has children that they've adopted or adopted themselves. The kids who are here, a lot of them are adopted. Some of the things that you have talked about, uh, the eye contact thing, one thing that really stand out yeah. is you, you and I have a, of a, a colleague that we used to work with who, when he mm-hmm. adopted his daughter, he and his wife, when they would hand feed her, there mm-hmm. would be eye contact before the spoon would start to move towards the mouth. And it, it yes. a consistent thing so that connection was established. It wasn't just eating to fulfill, you know, just one necessity. There was another necessity being met. They too rewombed their kid. Yes. Is there even another layer if you know that your kid that you've adopted has in utero trauma? For example, you know, the parent was, let's say the birth mom was under a tremendous amount of stress because she was a a single mother. She's trying to go to school. This isn't going to work. Or maybe the birth mother was on drugs during the time. Or maybe the biological father was extremely angry and abusive towards the birth mother. And the Mm -hmm. birth mother, while pregnant, is also a victim of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something that we got to watch for beyond just, it's hard to say, the normal adoption trauma for a child who's been even traumatized before they're going to be traumatized by the adoption? There's an entire field dedicated to your very question. It's called perinatal psychology, and it explores the psychology of people who have experiences while in the womb, in utero. And the Healing, the therapy is going to be very similar when it comes to adopted kids because it's called a pre-verbal trauma either way. So either the birth mom was really loving and sweet during the pregnancy, and then as soon as she gave up the child, a trauma occurred. It's usually pre-verbally before the kid has the ability to think cognitively and articulate words and concepts. Or the, like in my daughter's situation, there was, uh, you know, this desired to abort and there's tremendous stress. In either case, there's a, the wound is pre-verbal and standard talk therapy will fail them, will absolutely fail them. And this is why somatic psychotherapy, body-centered psychotherapy, dance movement therapy is super essential for these kids because these therapies support and access the pre-verbal self and they offer corrective experiences on that nervous system level that I was referencing earlier. So you can talk to a kid with a pre-verbal trauma all you want and use cognitive behavioral therapy and identify their cognitive distortions and try to have them have healthier beliefs. It will do nothing. And so the answer to your question is that in both in utero trauma or immediately post-birth, it's a pre-verbal trauma that requires a body-oriented 
psychotherapy. You know, you bring up something that people in the industry know, and it seems to be a secret for people who don't work uh, consistently with at risk. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it comes as a surprise to a lot of therapists who are traditionally trained. And right. I'm going back to what you said about talk therapy. Our clinical director, Sherry Simmons, who I've done a podcast with about trauma, um, she has a statement, she has a saying that she uses and drills into our staff's head called, you cannot lecture the limbic system. And it's because when a child is in survival mode, when they are not feeling safe and they go into mm -hmm. survival mode, literally, not some sort of metaphysical abstract concept of new age boulder woo-woo psychology. <laughs> I'm talking about yeah. literally the blood flow to the prefrontal cortex stops and it goes to the extremities to prepare to fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, or feed. And so mm -hmm. you can talk to death to yes. a child who's got abandonment, safety issues, yep. who's suffering from trauma. Anybody who's suffering from trauma to do traditional sit down, let's talk about it. You know what? You might have to do that to set the stage for therapy. You might have to do that to create the trust and to create the relationship. But at some yes. point, if that body isn't moving, the brain isn't moving, the energy isn't moving, nothing's Correct. moving. So are you saying that, and I just want to kind of give a blanket solution to families who have adoptive kids, are you saying that physical experiences, dance, sports, you know, this type of stuff, is that is that better or is a, is a crowd, as an audience, is that going to create some sensory integration issues? Like, what do I do after school with my little kiddo? Do they come right home and, and I do some rewombing process or we have a conversation while we're doing dishes? Or do I play date this kid or do I get him into some? <laughs> yeah, all of the above. I mean, I, let's, right. let's speak about yeah. movement. So I really agree with the clinical director. That is absolutely accurate. So in any trauma situation, the trauma occurs because so trauma isn't traumatizing. Not being able to fight or flight in reaction to a trauma is traumatizing. So if I fight off my attacker, if I run away, I'm not going to get PTSD. It's when we freeze, when we can't move, that the trauma gets embedded in our nervous system. And so people who have PTSD, people who have clinical trauma really need to do a lot of movement. So yes, any type of movement is going to be really healing. So dance, sports, you name it, it's going to be excellent. Now, in terms of what do you do, you know, obviously there is no prescription and it's all about tracking your child, reading your child, talking to your child. So if your child needs rewoming, you do rewoming. If your child needs to do dance, you do dance. So I would really caution your listeners from just fixating on one solution and getting more into the relational aspect of it is more important. Like relating to their kid and finding out what their body needs moment to moment. Sometimes my daughter needs to dance. Sometimes my daughter needs to be held. And I'm just tracking on a, my, on a very a very focused level, what she needs moment to moment. Aaron, if a family has more questions for you or wants mm -hmm. to understand this a little bit more, first of all, how do they get in touch with you and what are some resources you can suggest for them? Sure. I'm just looking at my list. There's any burning things I wanted to add in before we shift into that. Yeah. The only other thing I was going to add is exactly this question you're asking me is support. I recommend that every adoptive family join some type of support group. And I recommend that they get themselves therapy if they're feeling stuck because our culture 
doesn't really know how to handle adoption. Like, you know, I just had a client today who was about to adopt and she's like, well, when do I do the baby shower? I don't even know what, there's no established method. And I, it was really normalizing that for her. Like, yeah, our culture doesn't really have a way to really handle adoption. So we have to create our own culture. We need each other. And so I highly recommend that every parent seek out, there's thousands of adoption support groups everywhere you go. You just put that word into Google and it will pop up. So do not do this alone. You can't do this alone. You need tribe for that extra level of stress you're going to go through. The adoption process is, and we didn't even get to this at all, is profoundly stressful, profoundly traumatic for the adoptive family. And any adoptive family knows this, that you never know if you're going to, the baby you get, you're going to be able to keep it until the adoption's finalized. Every state's different. Some states you have to wait three days, some states you have to wait three months, some states you have to wait an entire year that this baby you are holding and loving might be taken away after a year. So getting support, getting therapy is going to be extremely important. There is a lot more to talk about this. And I think this is calling us towards a second show because right now in my facility, I have a young boy who is adopted and mm -hmm. the parents that he is currently with are his fifth. He's had four failed adoptions. And oh my God. we are working desperately with this family who bless this family to the ends yeah. of the earth. Yeah. They have done and invested everything to not be the fifth yeah. failed adoption. And the boy, yeah. quite frankly, does not want to go home. And it's not because of his yeah. parents. It's because currently we have provided the best, safest home for him. Yeah. But that's, yeah. again, not because of his parents. It's because I've got 24-hour care with cameras and right. <laughs> 365 right. days a year of therapy and entertainment and body movement and healthy diet and 30 staff to be watching over this kid. And he's like, ah, oh, finally, I, I feel like these people can handle it. And I can because I've got 30 people to handle him. So mm -hmm. it's a tremendous amount of work. So there is a lot more to talk about when it comes to adopt. Yeah. And I, so I think there is another show here to continue on some of these things um, sure. that you're bringing up. Sure. And we haven't even touched into the pre-experience for the parents, like you were saying, and failed adoptions. When do you know to call it and say, we're not the ones this yeah. kid needs more than I have? Yeah. I mean, those are two huge separate topics. We'll need a, a few podcasts, a few, a few uh, shows. But uh, yeah, I'd be delighted to do another show with you. And, uh, and I'll just say to this situation with you, you're in a paradox, Aaron, because the more secure he feels at Fire Mountain, the more challenging it's going to be to go back to the other family. And so it's workable. That's going to be obviously part of the therapy is as he transitions out of Fire Mountain, his grief's going to come up, not just about Fire Mountain, but the grief about the other four failed families. So you got your hands full on that one. And this is healable. So of course, I, I'm just so in awe that you guys take on such challenging cases. And as a former employee of yours, I will say that I am impressed with the skill set that all the staff has there. And I know that things are going to work out. In terms of reaching me, I have a website. It's Schneider Counseling com. People can reach out to me on that website if they'd like to. And my email address is aaronschneider613 at gmail.com. Let's plan yeah. on taking this adoption conversation to the next level with families because sure. certainly I think yeah. the, the biggest thing I've gotten out of this conversation is how many more of these conversations we need to have to really provide the support that I'm trying to provide yeah. with this podcast to families, especially yeah. families who yeah. do adoption. So what I want to say, and thank you yeah. for the compliment about our company and our staff. What I want to say, Aaron, 
as a kid who was adopted by a good dad, your kids are in awesome hands because I know you, I know what kind of dad you are with them. And thank you for being a good daddy because it's what we need <laughs> so much in this world. So thank yeah. you. I'm in awe of what you and your wife have taken on and, uh, and are stepping into with your hearts wide open. Both of you guys are beautiful, beautiful people. So please, everybody, go, go to schneidercounseling.com. Schneidercounseling.com. People go to schneidercounseling.com, get to know Aaron Schneider. He's a beautiful man, a brilliant therapist, and will be my guest again. I want to give a lot of thanks to Emily and Kristen. Kristen, the boss goddess over there at Mental Health News Radio. And as always, parents, the mantra is you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationship second, you take care of your kids third, because in that way, we do our best and are our best for our children. Thank you for listening to Beyond Risk and Back. This is your host, Aaron Huey, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.